Well, hi friends. Uh, my name's Rowan. I'm one of the pastors here at Auckland AV. And this week we get to look at what Christians actually believe in one of the key fundamental truths about Christianity in the resurrection of Jesus. So why don't we pray together and ask God to help us to understand this. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for your word. Thanks that we can come around it and understand who you are and what you've done. And we pray that today by your spirit and through your word, you would show us the amazing nature of Jesus and what his resurrection means. Amen. Well, if Jesus is dead, Christianity is a hoax. And whether you know it or not, the question that defines every decision you make is, did Jesus rise from the dead? If it actually happened, then Jesus is who he claimed to be. If it didn't happen, then we need to listen to the Apostle Paul himself and what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Have a look with me. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Lots of people think the Christian faith has a helpful narrative or good morals or is a useful way of living that works, but that Jesus isn't really God. He didn't really rise from the dead. Well, here, Paul, the person that wrote the majority of the New Testament, says that if the resurrection didn't happen, the Christian faith is worthless. It's not what Christianity is about. Mere sentiment, moral teaching, the good example of a man named Jesus. All those things are not what Christianity is about. Although many people come along and think that they are. But Christianity is about something far more profound. Something that's actually happened historically in human history. It's about someone so amazing and so powerful and so life-changing that if you get what the resurrection of Jesus actually means and see that it actually happened, it changes everything. So first, let me show you why Christians believe Jesus was actually raised from the dead in the fact of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then the twelve then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. We're told in verse 6 that there were literally hundreds of people who saw Jesus with their eyes and in some cases touched him with their hands. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Now, this was written around 16 to 18 years after Jesus' death. Do you hear that? 16 to 18 years after. And that's the reason why Paul can say in verse 6, you don't have to just trust me. You can talk to the people who saw it. You can interrogate them. They're, they're still alive, most of them. It's only been 16 to 18 years. Paul draws a line in the sand of history and says, the resurrection of Jesus happened. Really, historically, test it. Don't just shut your eyes to the evidence and believe like some nine-year-old boy who stands on the roof of his house and jumps off believing he can fly. No, no, no. Test it against history. See, Paul could never have made that offer unless all the original witnesses of the resurrection um, were through the rest of their lives testifying to the reality of the resurrection. 
at enormous cost to themselves. See, another witness to the resurrection was the changed lives of those who believed it, who claimed it. And when you put together the, the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses and the changed lives of the people who saw Jesus, you've got a very, very powerful case that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened. The German scholar Wolfhart Pannenberg says that the early Christians could not possibly have preached the resurrection of Christ publicly and successfully unless both the empty tomb and the hundreds of eyewitnesses really existed. See, if there's anybody here today who says, well, who knows whether there really was an empty tomb after all these years? Who knows if there were really eyewitnesses? Why would I trust these ancient documents? Pannenberg says, as a historian, there's absolutely no way those things didn't happen. There must have been an empty tomb. There must have been all these eyewitnesses or Christianity wouldn't have been able to preach the resurrection of Christ so close to the event and successfully. It would have been a flop. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have run. Everyone would have gone, no, here's the body or no, we didn't see it. He says it must have happened. N.T. Wright, the English scholar, uh, puts it like this. He says that if there was only an empty tomb and there'd been no sightings, people would have believed that the body was stolen. But if it had only been eyewitnesses claiming to have seen him, but the tomb still had the body in it, then everybody would have believed that they were hallucinating. But if all three of these were true, the empty tomb, the sightings and the permanently changed lives of the witnesses, Christianity could not ever have even begun. See, there's the case that the resurrection actually happened. There's a whole host of witnesses outside the Bible from both Christian and non-Christian sources that corroborate with that evidence as well. I'll just show you one from a man called Josephus, who's a, a Roman source written around 90 AD and not a Christian. He says this, At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. This is what Paul is saying here. The reason he believed in Jesus was because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. These other witnesses point to that fact. Well, I'm sure you say, well, that's great for him. You know, he lived back then. What are we supposed to do today? You know, how are we supposed to believe now? We're not going to meet Jesus on the Damascus road like Paul did. Now, I think I know what Paul would say to you if that's you, if that's the doubts that you have creeping in about the resurrection. If, if Paul were here today, I think I know how he'd explain it because of the way he explained it to people in exactly that situation in the New Testament. He wouldn't say, well, you just have to wait for some experience or you just have to believe and, and, and shut your eyes to the evidence or, or maybe wait where you just, your heart feels it somewhere deep down inside. And we know he wouldn't say that because of what was recorded to what he said to those who hadn't seen the resurrection with their own eyes. See, in Acts 26, Paul is called before Festus, the governor, and King Agrippa. Now, King Agrippa was the king of Judea and Galilee, and he lived in Judea and Galilee um, during all the time of, of Christ's life and death. And Paul is brought before Festus to explain to him and Agrippa 
why he's teaching that Jesus is the son of God, contrary to the Jewish faith. They want to check out what he's actually saying. Now, listen to what Paul says in Acts 26, verse 22. To this very day, I've had help from God and I stand and testify both small and great, saying that nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. And it's at this point that Paul explains the the reaction that Festus jumps into. Paul explains the resurrection and Festus jumps in. Acts 26, 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Now, Paul clearly was a philosopher. He he was a man who was a scholarly person who who could think well and had been well-versed in the Jewish scriptures. Uh, He was a propeller head. And Festus is here going, oh, you've lost it. You've gone all too academic, Paul. You're off with the fairies. But the point that he says that is the point that Paul explains the resurrection of Jesus. See, Festus can't stomach the idea of resurrection at all. It seems like lunacy to him. But then listen to Paul's reply. It's really interesting. 26 verse 25. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, which is Agrippa, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Now, do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, Festus, I'm not talking about philosophy, some idea. I'm not, I'm not dreaming it up. I'm talking about history. I'm, talk- I'm not talking about some subjective experience. I'm talking about an objective reality. See, Paul didn't want to believe in Jesus either. He was, he was a Jew and so strongly Jewish, he was killing these new Christian people. But when he saw the evidence that Jesus really was raised from the dead, he had no other option than to believe in Jesus. And to prove his point to Festus, he turns to King Agrippa, who was there, who was around, who knew the public facts. You were, you were there, he says. These events weren't done in a corner. Now, I think... This is hugely unsettling to us today because we don't want to deal with Jesus like this at all. We want to say, look, it's fine if you want to believe in Jesus. It's great that it fulfills you. But don't you dare insist that people believe in Jesus because it might not fulfill them. But here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I didn't believe in Jesus because he fulfilled me. I didn't want to believe in him. There was nothing fulfilling about giving my life to this man in any way, shape or form. He was a threat to everything I had, a a threat to my righteous view in front of others, a threat to my worldview, a threat to my control of my own life, a a threat to, to everything. I didn't want to believe in him, but I had to. I had to because of the evidence for the resurrection. If Paul were to speak to us today, he'd say, let the public facts of the resurrection argue with you. Even 2,000 years later, you can't just say, well, it doesn't fulfill me. I'm not into that sort of thing. You've got to account for the facts of history. You have to account for the fact that hundreds of Orthodox Jews, who were the last people on the planet to believe in the risen Son of God, did. That was totally contradictory to everything they held, and it didn't fulfill them. You've got to account for the fact that people, sometimes hundreds at a time, saw him. It could have been a hallucination. You don't have hallucinations in groups. You've got to account for the fact that those people who lived the rest of their lives based on the fact of the resurrection and they died for their belief in the resurrection, 
did so willingly. It's not a hoax or a trick. They actually believed it happened. Why would you die for a lie? And so many of them. Now, you've got to come up with a historically plausible alternate explanation for the birth of the Christian church, other than the fact that Jesus really did rose from the dead. Now, I'm going to be a little bit strong here. If you don't have a historically plausible alternate explanation, then you can't walk away from Christianity and claim any sort of intellectual integrity. You can't reject. So you can reject the resurrection. But unless you can provide a plausible alternative explanation, you can't reject it without intellectual integrity. Now, I've met many people who say, look, it can't have happened because people don't rise from the dead. But at that point, Paul would say, now, now you're, you're doing philosophy. You're saying people can't rise from the dead. It's not possible. But I'm talking about history. If you have a philosophical presupposition that people don't rise from the dead, that's fine. If you want to believe it, that's fine. But you're believing it in total contradiction to the historical evidence. Jesus actually rose from the dead. It wasn't a resuscitation where he later on went to die. It was a resurrection rising to life and never to die again. That, my friends, is the facts of the resurrection. But so what? <laughs> so what? Some guy rose from the dead. What's that got to do with us? Well, that's where you need to understand the meaning of the resurrection. The meaning of the resurrection. I think this is the most often misunderstood doctrine by Christians. We don't understand what the resurrection actually means. In John chapter 11, John tells us about a time where Jesus arrives at his sick friend Lazarus's house four days too late. Lazarus had been a close friend, and, uh, close friend of his and had actually fallen sick and had died four days earlier. Lazarus's sister Martha, having some kind of grip on who Jesus actually was, asked Jesus, why didn't you come sooner? Like, you could have stopped Lazarus's death. She's, she's mourning this death of her brother and going, Jesus could have stopped it. But just listen to the interaction because here we learn the meaning of the resurrection. John 11 verse 23. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So here, Martha expresses the plain teaching of what every Jew believed. There is something called the resurrection. Not just resurrection, but the resurrection. It was a Jewish expectation that there would be a point in history that everyone would rise from the dead. That's really important to understand this. See, because if all that happens is to us is that we, we're born and we live and we die, then all our actions are meaningless because they end in nothing. You know, why does it matter what I do if there's no one to value it? Sure, my actions might be valued by others here, but they'll die too. We intrinsically know that life is valuable, but what gives it its value? Who judges what each life is worth? See, if something's only worth as much as someone else values it, who is the ultimate valuer? If death is the end and there's no judgment on our life and our actions, and your life and mine is effectively meaningless. We live, we, we act, we do things on earth, we, we, we try and have these morals and do good things, but why does it matter? Why does it matter if, if there is no judgment on it? If, if all we do is live and eat and then die, it's just meaningless. Truth and justice, beauty, integrity, every value you want to have 
becomes meaningless. Now they might have an impact for people on a brief time, but then we all die. But if, as the Old Testament expectation and Jewish expectation and Jesus' expectation is true, that there is a resurrection. If, as the Bible says, and every Orthodox Jew and Christian believes that on the final day, all people will rise and God will judge our actions, then life becomes meaningful. It actually has lasting value because death is not the end. What I do here on earth does matter, for it is judged by God, the everlasting God. And more than that, if there is a resurrection where everyone's deeds are judged, then justice will finally be given. For those killed in the Holocaust, for those killed in the Christchurch massacre, for those that have been the recipients of evil and hate, we can rest in the fact that justice will prevail. No one will get away with it because God will judge. That's such a helpful thought. That's such a helpful idea and a helpful truth. I don't know how often I I get frustrated with the way others act and what they've done. And I want to help right the wrong and I want to show them I want justice to be delivered. And I want to take it into my hands so I can make sure it happens. But I can rest in that a far greater judge than me will deal with the wrongs and evil of this world. Hebrews 9, 27, we looked at two weeks ago, says that man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. This was the plain understanding of the Jews. And this is what Martha believes. All will rise, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting judgment. That's why human life has value, because death is not the end. So Martha believes Lazarus, her brother, will rise on that last day, as will the whole earth, when God sends his promised king to judge the world, some to everlasting judgment and some to everlasting life. But then Jesus surprises them all and gives us the meaning of the resurrection. Look at verse 25 of chapter 11 of John. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is saying this Old Testament expectation of resurrection and the one who would come, the king who would come to judge the living and the dead, God's promised king is here. Jesus is God's king who will rule the earth forever and will judge the living and the dead. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And by him rising from the dead, he is showing that clear as day that he is the judge, that he is come. He doesn't say he can bring about resurrection. He doesn't say I can make resurrection happen. He doesn't say I'm so powerful I can raise people to life or all of those he does. He says, you believe that the great and glorious day of the resurrection coming at the end of the age when all believers will be raised bodily from the grave. You believe in that and you're right. Here is the surprise. I am the arrival of that day. You knew the day would come with the Messiah. I am the Messiah. That just means promised King or Christ. That's why Christians call Jesus, Jesus Christ. He is the promised King, the Savior of the world. And he is saying that I am the resurrection. Now I've got to ask you, do you believe this? That's what Jesus is saying to Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. 
I'm here. I love you. I've come to right the wrong. I've come to judge the earth. I've come to give life, life that does not end. Jesus asks Martha, and this is what she says in verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Jesus, at this point, outraged at death's reign over all humanity because of our rebellion against him and filled with love, love for Lazarus, love for creation, love for you and me, looks down the barrel of death, looks into the tomb of the man who'd been dead for four days as the one who is the resurrection and the life and displays a preview of what he's about to bring about for all people. Verse 39, he says, remove the stone. Martha, the the dead man's sister, told him, but Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead for four days. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The whole purpose of Jesus allowing Lazarus to die, the entire point of Loving Martha and Mary and Lazarus by allowing them to experience the pains of death is about to be made spellbindingly clear. It's got nothing to do with them and everything to do with Jesus and the resurrection. Look at verse 41. So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I say this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, He shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And thank God that he said Lazarus's name. For if he had not, every tomb in Jerusalem would have spat out its dead at that moment. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Bound hand and foot with linen strips and with a face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. It's astounding. A dead man obeyed the word of God. Friends, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he brings life, life after death. As the judge of the world and the king over all, he is the one who will judge and has power over death to reverse its effect. Now remember, death came into the world because of our rebellion against God, our sin. And Jesus' death in our place as he took the penalty for us, dealt with that. He, he was the, the just offering of, of God to say, I'll take the penalty that the world deserves." As he died on the cross, he took the penalty we deserve. And then God raised him from the dead. And he had all authority over death. What is astounding here is that a dead man obeyed the word of God. Now we need to remember That's what happens every time to someone who comes to Jesus. God calls you to himself. He reveals who Jesus is and he causes us to see God's glory. Jesus as the resurrection and the life and to believe. That day in John 11, they saw that life begins with Jesus because he really is the resurrection and the life. He is more than just the proof of life after death. He is more than just someone who can resuscitate. He is the coming king who will judge the living and the dead and bring in new life forever. What's clear from the words and actions of Jesus is that there's something more valuable, more important, more essential for you and for me than avoiding all the grief and loss in life and even death itself. And that is recognizing the glory of Jesus, that he is the resurrection and the life. 
Don't measure the love of God for you by how much health and wealth and comfort he brings to your life now. He's not about wealth and prosperity now, but knowing that our sins are forgiven, being brought back into relationship with the Father and and marveling at his glory that he is the one who has conquered death and brings new life and is the king of the world. The nations around have so many political issues. The world does not act in the way it ought. Our leaders are broken. We're all looking for a leader. And the resurrection tells us that the leader we are looking for, the the one who will rule the world in the way that creation is groaning for and longing for, and Romans 1 tells us, has come in Jesus. And his resurrection signals that the resurrection is here. The age of eternal life has been made possible. It signals that Jesus is the king and the one who will judge the world. That's what the resurrection meant. In Philippians 2, Paul shows us who this resurrected king is. Have a look at Philippians 2 verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, Jesus' resurrection from the dead shows that the resurrection is here, that he is the king. And if historically he rose from the dead, that means he is who the Old Testament pointed forward for him to be. He is God come to save us, to offer us life and to rule. And that means he is the king. No matter who you follow, who you place on the throne of your life. The physical resurrection of Jesus means that he is the king. That's why it doesn't matter whether we think he'll fulfill us or not or whether we like it or not. He is the king. And on the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why Christians proclaim Jesus because... He's given us his life. He's offered us forgiveness. He's offering eternal life and he is the king. We need to remember that. And we need to share that with the world around us. And what that means for us is that what we do here and now matters. If you trust that Jesus rose from the dead, if you're convinced of that, then your life has more meaning than you live and you die and that's it. There is purpose and lasting meaning. And it matters how you live because our works will be judged. And that transforms how we live now. Listen to Paul in the next bit of Philippians 3. Philippians 3.20. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Jesus is coming back and he's bringing with him the resurrection of all people to eternal life or eternal judgment. And with that, there's a bodily resurrection. He will raise us, you and me, to life. For those who trust in Jesus, death is defeated and our future is with him forever. And we have that hope to look forward to. No more mourning or crying or pain, bodies that don't ache and break, not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus' death in our place and trusting that he is the resurrection. The great Christian theologian B.B. Warfield wrote this, O toil-worn pilgrim, weary with your burden, do you want to know the glory in store for you? Look at Jesus, 
You shall be like him. Are you tempted to despair? Do you shrink from an endless future in which you shall remain forever yourself? Look at Jesus, not as you are, but what he is you are to be. If we can but attain to such a hope, heaven bursts at once upon our souls to be like Jesus. Is this not a glory in the presence of which all other glories fade away because of the surpassing greatness of that glory? When we look at Jesus, we may not, we cannot afford to forget that we are looking at that which by the grace of God we shall become. Now, how I long for that day to be like Jesus when he comes back and those who trust in him are raised to everlasting life and made like him with no more mourning or crying or pain. How great will that day be? How great is the resurrection? Friends, God raised Jesus to life. It actually happened. That signified Jesus as the ruler of the world. Jesus has conquered death. And the effects of sin have been consumed in him for those who trust in him. And he now gives new life. And he will return to judge the living and the dead. Friends, what earthly treasure could possibly be so valuable? It would hold you back from the resurrection Jesus offers you. Come and put your life in his hands. Come and trust the king that is in control. To find out how, come back next week. Let's pray. Father God, as we have seen the evidence for the physical resurrection of Jesus and the meaning of that resurrection, we are so amazed that you would step into our world, that Jesus would take the penalty for our rebellion and that you would offer us life that lasts forever. Thank you so much that Jesus is king and is in control and will bring justice and judge the living and the dead. And thank you that we don't have to face what we deserve because Jesus has faced it for us. We pray we will trust you in the brokenness of this world to bring about justice. We long for the day that the evils are dealt with and oppression is finished and that we can stand forgiven with no more mourning or crying or pain. We long for that day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Please, Lord Jesus, come back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.